All right. I hope, uh, hope you had an awesome Thanksgiving. Kay and me and the girls, we, uh, Kay and I and the girls, we uh, decorated the Christmas tree on Friday and we had conversations about, hey, what Christmas movies are we going to watch over the Christmas season? You probably have already picked out some. So I want to help you because CableTV.com recently released um, what the most popular Christmas movies are by state based on their data and algorithms and insight that they have. And so I want some interaction here. I want you to see which of your favorite Christmas movies, what, what states they're from, so, or what states say that this is their most popular movie. How many of your, your favorite Christmas movie is Elf? Elf with Will Ferrell? These are the states that like Elf the most, and uh, I, I love Elf. I love, I've seen it so many times. I have never been able to get on an elevator the same way since watching Elf. I'm just tempted to, you know, hit all the buttons like he does. Um, what about Scrooge with Bill Murray? Anybody, any Scrooge fans? Like two people like Scrooge. Uh, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Anybody like that? You and people from Mississippi like The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. What about Home Alone? Home Alone is your favorite Christmas movie? Yeah. Die Hard. How many of you, it's Die Hard. <laughs> Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. It's not a Christmas movie. CableTV.com says it doesn't count. Not a Christmas movie. Interestingly, the most popular, according to their data, the most popular Christmas movie in California is The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, some people love it. Some between services were like, I've never even seen it. Must be Northern California people or the goth kids from Brea. Not sure why exactly this is the most popular movie. But the reason that we like these Christmas story movies, the reason we're attracted to them is there is something about story that gets our attention. And there is a thread through all of these movies and a thread through all of the Christmas stories that we love that things start miserable or they start in conflict and yet Christmas changes things and then there's joy. That, that's a common theme through all of the Christmas stories, through all of the Christmas movies. There's conflict, there's misery, Christmas changes everything and then there's joy. In fact, one of the most famous Christmas stories of all time, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, he uh, introduces us to Ebenezer Scrooge. And Scrooge is a name that we've now um, used through it for other reasons. And Scrooge is this miserable businessman. He's very successful. He's very wealthy, but he's miserable. And he looks at the Christmas season and of the Christmas season, he says, bah humbug. I mean, he just hates it. And then one night he has an encounter that changes everything about him. Three, uh, there's a bug flying at me while I'm speaking. I caught it just now. There's, um, thank you, thanks for that. Um, there's, there's three, um, there's three, <laughs> three guests that come and visit him while he's uh, sleeping. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And this encounter with these ghosts completely changes him. He wakes up the next day and he's committed to being this completely different person. He says, I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everybody. This one encounter changes everything about him. Very similar. The Grinch who stole Christmas. You perhaps as a kid read Dr. Seuss's famous book. And, and the Grinch has a heart that is two sizes too small. 
And he hears all of the joy and gladness of the Who's, and he decides he's going to go steal their presents. He does not like that they are celebrating and that they're filled with joy and gladness. But as he goes on the journey to steal their presents, he hears their joy, he hears their singing, and he is changed by their joy and his heart that was two sizes too small. It grows three times larger, and he is completely changed. And why do we love these stories? We were, and if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. And this is why us Christians will say that we love these stories. Because we were actually created for this story, that we're attracted to the story, that the Christmas story, not those, but the ultimate Christmas story, is the story that God comes here to change us. Completely, we have an encounter with him, much like the Scrooge has an encounter that changed everything about him, that we have an encounter with God who came here for us and everything is changed. That our hearts that were two sizes too small grow three times larger because the God of Christmas changes everything about us. That's why we long for these stories. We may not even realize that the reason we're attracted to these stories is because we were created for the ultimate Christmas story. And those stories, they look backward at the Christmas story. And what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, we're starting a series today called Announcing Christmas. We're going to see stories in the Old Testament, meaning before Jesus came, that announce the Christmas story. See, some people have wrongly read the Bible. That you get through, like this is when the book of Matthew starts. It's literally two-thirds through the Bible. And so some are like, man, this part here... You just kind of got to barrel through that and trudge through that. And then, ah, you finally get to the announcement of Christmas. But we're going to see today that the announcement of Christmas is actually in the third chapter in the Bible. We're going to see that Christmas, the story of Christmas, is woven throughout the Scripture. And it starts right away in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And it is announced. You're going to see this glorious announcement today. In the third chapter in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at different announcements over the next couple of weeks. And then on Christmas week, we're going to look at the announcement to Mary and Joseph about Jesus. But before we get there, let's look at these other announcements. Does that make sense? So Genesis chapter 3, let's look there. You have to really start in Genesis chapter 2, the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. Because this is when everything is perfect in the world. God created humanity. He puts humanity, Adam and Eve, in a beautiful garden called the Garden of Eden. And everything is as it should be. Everything is right and everything is perfect. The scripture says this, both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. No shame. Can you imagine a life with no shame? No shame. No regret. No built-up angst and anxiety and fear and worry. No remorse, no guilt that plagues you. Absolutely no shame. Adam and Eve are in this perfect garden, and they are walking with God, the Scripture says, in the cool of the day. Everything is right. Everything is as it should be, and there's no shame. It doesn't last long because then you get to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, things go terribly wrong because of humanity's decision to disobey God. 
And we're going to look, we're gonna, you're going to sense, just like all Christmas stories, you're going to sense the misery for several verses, and then you're going to see this glorious announcement. And so here we are, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals. So this is Satan, the serpent, the liar. He was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, to Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now look at the screen. I want you to notice the difference in the language. In the first um, verses of Genesis chapter 2 and then the first verse of Genesis chapter 3, that phrase, the Lord God, we, see, we have it highlighted, that phrase, the Lord God, is used 12 times. The word there for Lord, if you have your Bible, you may want to circle it. And the original language, it's the personal name of God, Yahweh, which is the name that God reveals himself as, the self-existing one, the one who's over everything, but also the God who is good. He loves you. He's good to you. He's great. He's over everything, but he's also good. He's the Lord God. But then notice how Satan goes to Eve. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? So he calls into question the very character of God, which when we wander from God, that's the same tactic that the enemy uses with us. Is God really good to you? Is he really being gracious to you? Is he really the Lord God? No, he's just God. He's not the Lord God. So this is what Eve does. The woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So here's the temptation. Hey, eat this fruit and you will be like God. You will decide for yourself what's best for you. You will decide for yourself what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. You decide for yourself. You be like God and you be the one who's in charge of your life. You be the one who decides everything for your life. It's still the same temptation today. Kanye West in his recent album wrapped this about this very scene. He says, you going to do what Adam do or say, baby, let's put this back on the tree because we have everything we need. It's a good line. It's a good line. It is. He's, he's saying, are you going to say, no, I want to decide, or are you going to say, no, God, you decide. Let's put the fruit back on the tree because, God, you're everything that we need. But Adam and Eve don't put the, the fruit back on the tree. They eat it, and they're saying, we want to be in charge of our own lives. Now, notice what happens the moment they do that. Next verse. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In seven verses, they go from they are 
alone before God. It's Adam and Eve before God, and they are naked, but they feel no shame. Seven verses later, they now have their eyes open, they are naked, and they are embarrassed, and they feel shame, and they start looking for fig leaves to cover themselves, which is a picture of what religion is, by the way, when we attempt to fix ourselves before God, when we attempt in our goodness to correct the problem, when we attempt with our merit to find fig leaves and cover ourselves and make everything right with ourselves, this is man's attempt to make themselves right before God. And it doesn't work. They still feel shame. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? See, some of you think in this moment that you feel the shame and the aloneness, the isolation from God. And you think maybe you're going to have to do a bunch of things to get God to love you. And listen, I want you to see in this verse that God comes looking for you. He comes after you. Listen, you're here today. Understand that God is looking for you. He pursues you. He loves you. He goes after you. He goes after Adam. Right after Adam and Eve have said, we don't want you, God. We want our own way. God doesn't leave them. God goes after them. Adam, where are you? And notice what Adam says, verse 10. He said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And there's three huge problems that he exposes right here that we still struggle with in a broken and fallen world. And you felt these problems too. I was afraid, fear. I was naked, shame. I hid, isolation. Three devastating implications of a fallen and broken world. Shame before God, shame with others, fear and isolation. And we're going to see that the Christmas announcement triumphs over all three of these. So verse 11, then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Absolute loser moment for Adam <laughs> right here. Complete loser in this moment. Adam, who, uh, who told you to eat that? What had happened was, I mean, he's just blaming. He's just blaming, which we still have that happen today. We, you'll see that at work this week. One department will blame the other department for a missed deadline. You'll see it in relationships. He said, she said, you'll see it in the public sphere. There's constant blame, constant blame. That's what happens when sin entered the world and messed everything up. It did. And so their relationship, which was perfect, just a couple of verses earlier, there's now this blame being cast towards one another. All right, that's the bad news. Now, listen, it's about to get really good. I need you to press in because this is going to be the first Christmas announcement. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, I, I, I love this. The Lord God, not just, the Lord God looks the serpent in the eyes and says this to him. Theologians call this, Bible scholars call this the proto-evangelon. Okay, what does that mean? 
it means the first gospel. So the announcement of the gospel doesn't come when an angel appears to Joseph and to Mary and announces that Christ is going to be born. No, no, no. That wasn't the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. The first gospel is in Genesis chapter 3. Right after sin entered the world, there's this glorious announcement that I'm about to read to you. Right after we messed everything up, there's this glorious news that God's going to fix all of the things that I messed up. Right after the sin, there's this Savior who announces this first gospel. You guys should be a little jacked about that, but since you're not, let me just go ahead and read it. Uh, Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed. And so God curses the enemy, which is a promise to you. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now he's about to talk about the offspring. Hang with me. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So there's a lot of layers here, but this is what God is saying to Satan. There is one coming who's going to be born of a woman. You are going to strike his heel You are going to cause suffering to the one who's coming, who's born of a woman, but he's going to crush your head. And the Christmas story is that one does come for us, born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary, who comes here and walks perfectly on this world and has his heel bruised by the enemy as he goes to the cross for our sake. But ultimately on the cross, he crushes the head of our enemy and destroys our sin and destroys shame. This is the first announcement of Christmas in the third chapter in the Bible. This is the announcement. Now now look at verse 21. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So the fig coverings aren't working. And so what does God do? How do you get clothing from an animal? How do you get skins from an animal? I know for some of you, oh, man, I, I never think about that. I go to Fashion Island, I go to Nordstrom, and I get my leather jacket, and you're kind of, you're one step removed from what has to happen. My in-laws, they're hunters, so at Christmas for them, every Christmas present, when they're deer hunters and duck hunters, every Christmas present is, is about hunting. It's camo and deer smelly stuff and duck calls. And so when they read this, they get, oh man, there's skins and clothing in Genesis 3. That means that God killed an animal in the garden and he clothed Adam and Eve with the sacrifice. And so some of you are like, I don't like the fact that he killed an animal, but just hang with me. You'll like it in a moment. This is a foreshadowing that there's going to be another sacrifice that comes, that the one born of a woman who crushes the head of the enemy is going to sacrifice himself on a cross and he doesn't clothe us with skins of an animal. He clothes us with his forgiveness and his righteousness and we are covered with all of his perfection so we don't stand in our shame before a holy God. We stand completely forgiven because of his sacrifice. So skins of an animal that cover Adam and Eve is just a picture that Christ covers you 
with all of his forgiveness. All right, so real quickly, three things I want you to see. Because what does this mean for you? Okay, what does it mean for me today, the first Christmas announcement? There's three things I want you to get. This means this for you today. Number one, he finds us in our hiding. He finds us in our hiding. This is God solving the problem of isolation in our lives. He finds us in our hiding. Adam and Eve hid from God. They felt they couldn't stand before God. And because they chose their own way, the natural result was isolation. And when we choose our own way, the full implication of our own way, the full trajectory of our self-dependence is always isolation. Why do I say that? Well, let me... Let me quote from a secular work from several UC professors at different University of California schools throughout um, the state that worked on this landmark book. It's a groundbreaking book that's been used at universities throughout the country. It was a long sociological study of American life. And this is what they said about the value in our culture for independence and self-reliance. Notice what they said. American cultural traditions define personality, achievement, and the purpose of human life in ways that leave the individual suspended in glorious but terrifying isolation. This is their conclusion after looking at sociology in America. Self-reliance is a virtue that implies being alone. Now why? Because when I insist on my own way and my desires change over time, my circle then gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm isolating myself from others and ultimately isolating myself from God. The good news of the Christmas announcement is that in our hiding, God doesn't leave us there. He comes for us and he searches for us that we don't have to live with the misery of our isolation, that we don't have to live with the misery of our, the full trajectory of our independence, the full trajectory of our self-reliance, that we can enjoy him and walk with him as Adam and Eve did in the cool of the day. He finds us in our hiding. So you may be here and you may be thinking, you know, I'd like to find God. I'd like to find him. Understand the message of the Christian faith is not pressure for you to find God. He's not lost and we aren't looking. The message of the Christian faith is not pressure for you to figure this out and for you to find God. The message of the Christian faith is that we were lost and he was looking. And he's looking for us and he seeks and he saves that which is lost. And so listen, just hear what he's saying today to you. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? Where are you? You don't have to live with the burden, the full trajectory of your self-reliance, which only leaves you isolated. I want you, I want you, where are you? He finds us in our hiding, number one. Number two, he covers our shame with his sacrifice. The sacrifice in the garden of that animal. God looked at Adam and Eve and saw that their fig coverings were insufficient. And he looks at us and sees that our offering, our covering of our own ingenuity and our own effort and our own merit is insufficient. And so just as God clothed Adam and Eve in the garden with the sacrifice, God came here and sacrificed himself to cover you in your shame. 
John Stott said it this way. This is one of my favorite quotes. The essence of sin, this, if you want, like, what's sin? What's the Bible? When the Bible says sin, what does it mean? This is, this is a great way to understand it. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. We want to decide what's right and wrong. It's man saying, I want to be on the throne of my life. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, the throne of our lives. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be, which is on the cross. God covers us with his sacrifice. He covers our shame. And so understand if you are a Christian, you are not, you are not your past. You are not your sin. You are not your affair. You are not your divorce. You are not your failures. You are not your abortion. You are not your addictions. You are not your bankruptcy. You are not your foreclosure. You are not your struggle. You are not your issues. You are not your problems. You also, you also are not your wins. You're not your portfolio. You're not your accomplishments. You're not your spiritual grit and your spiritual hard work. Because of the mercy and the grace of our God, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He looks at you and there is no shame. He only sees the sacrifice and the mercy of our great God. That is the glory of this Christmas announcement. There is. There's, there's no shame. And I need to hear this story, this message over and over again. I just started reading this new devotional with my kids and, and we're, we're just a couple chapters in. They're like, Dad, we heard this one before. And, I, you know, some of these stories in the Bible. And I'm like, listen, I've heard these before. I, I've taught these before, but I need these over and over again. I need this over and over again. Why? When I first became a Christian, I needed to hear, I needed to hear that I wasn't all that I had done because I had done a whole bunch of things that caused me to hide from God. I needed so badly to hear, Eric, listen, Eric, you're not what you've done. You're not. You're what Christ has done for you on the cross. You're not what you've done. I needed to hear that. Today, now, after walking with Jesus for over 20 years, I need to hear and be reminded over and over again that I'm not what I do. Because I, even as a preacher, even as your pastor, I can be so tempted to stand before God with my fig leaves, with the things I do. Like this sermon's gonna be a fig leaf that I stand before God and I need to be reminded over and over again, Eric, you're not what you do. You are who I have declared you to be because I have covered your shame and you need to hear this over and over again because we are so tempted to stand before God and others in our own fig leaves instead of in his sacrifice. He covers us in our shame. And then number three, and this is really the announcement right here. He will defeat, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. He will defeat our enemy. He will defeat our enemy. Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden, and we have failed too. 
We, some people say, man, they, why do we have to suffer for what they did? We do the same thing. We do the same thing. We choose our own way. They failed the test in the Garden of Eden, and we failed the test in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was in a very different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was betrayed and the night that he would go to the cross. And while we failed the test in the Garden of Eden, Jesus passed the test in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because while we were in the Garden of Eden and we said, not as you will, God, but as we will, Jesus, while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed the opposite. God, I don't want to go to the cross because I don't want to taste Eric's sin and shame, but not as I will, Father, but as you will. I'll do as you have me do. And he wrestled while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Satan would tempt him to avoid the cross so that we couldn't be forgiven. In the opening scene of The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson artistically captures this. And some of you have seen the movie, but maybe you didn't see it through the lens of Genesis chapter 3. Because in the opening scene, I'm going to show it to you in a moment. In the opening scene, Jesus, just as the scripture says in the gospel of Luke, is praying and asking God to let the cup pass. And Satan, who has tempted Jesus before, would love Jesus to avoid the cross so we couldn't be free and we couldn't be forgiven. And so as you watch this opening scene, it's so beautiful. Gibson and the film directors and, and all those who worked on it worked in Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden, into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to see what happens. It's so beautiful. So Jesus is praying in Aramaic, and Satan is asking him, hey, who are you? If you're really the Son of God, why are you going to go to the cross? Just as Satan has tempted Jesus before, hey, if you're really who you are, who you say you are, why would you suffer this way? Satan does not want Jesus to go to the cross. And so a snake emerges in this scene, so symbolic. Satan has heard the announcement in Genesis 3 that you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. So Jesus is praying with agony as he prepares to go and secure our forgiveness on the cross. many. It's about to get really good. This is going to get really good. He looks at Satan. in the theater. It's so good. It's so good. I was in the theater, and I knew some people didn't, didn't know the story of Genesis 3, but I'm there. So I'm like, dude, that's Genesis 3. Bro, that's Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is happening right now. That snake, he's going to crush his head. Watch, he's going to crush his head. He crushes his head. Boom! He crushes his head. I mean, I was jacked. I was jacked. Because some people could watch the passion of the Christ and look at Jesus on a cross and think poor Jesus as the victim dying on the cross. But Jesus is not the victim on the cross. Jesus is the victor who crushes the head of the enemy to secure everlasting life for us. 
He's not the victim. He's the victorious one who finds you in your hiding. That's how much he loves you. Who covers you in all of your shame and all of your sin. He loves you and he sacrifices himself to fully cover you. This is not poor Jesus on the cross. This is our conquering God on the cross. And he crushes the head of the enemy. And we still live in a world now where the scripture says that the God of this age, Satan, he roars around. And he roars around like this lion who seeks to destroy and devour. But a time is coming when Jesus returns a second time. And when he comes this second time, the scripture says, he's not coming to suffer and die. He only does that once because his sacrifice was good and sufficient for all of our sin. He dies once. When he returns the second time, he's not coming to suffer, but he's coming to rule and to reign, and he will vanquish our enemy forever. He will stomp on his head. He will crush the skull of the enemy. Merry Christmas is in Genesis chapter 3. It's in Genesis 3. The announcement is here. It's here. And we'll see over the next couple weeks that it's really throughout some of these incredible stories that we have a Savior in the middle of our isolation. Some of you are isolated today. And you're trying to hide from God. I'm so glad you're here because I want you to hear this that God's looking for you. Where are you? Where are you? Some of you are wrestling with shame from something in your past, from something you think that no one else even knows about. His offer to you is to cover you with his sacrifice. And he crushes the head of our enemy. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's celebrate the great story the great news, the great announcement that Jesus came here for us.
Just our voices. If there's anything going on in your life that we can pray with you about, we have a team of people right by those lights, my left, your right, that would love to pray with you. If your need today is prayer for healing, we have an elder prayer room. The scripture says in James 5, you can ask the elders of the church to pray over you if you need healing. And so that's physical healing, emotional healing. To get to the elder prayer room, you go through the doors in the back and you you take a right. I want to mention one more thing before I... um, pray over you a prayer of benediction. Our church has a group of elders called directional elders that set the overarching direction of the church. We then have shepherding elders that, that shepherd us during critical moments. This is how we're governed. I am one of these elders, but I also report to our directional elders or our board of elders. It's a rotating system, which means that they serve four years and rotate off. And so we recently have had um, one rotate off. And so we have a new elder rotating on. And the scripture says that anyone who becomes an elder or an overseer at the church should be tested and should be above reproach and blameless. And the qualifications for an elder are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And we believe that Sam Tang, who is the one who's going to roll on to our elder, our directional elder or our elder board, meets all of the qualifications in those passages. Uh, This is uh, Sam and his wife, Tammy, and their two daughters. And so really grateful for Sam and Tammy. Uh, But if there's something, we always do this anytime we have an elder roll on because we take this so serious. I mean, this is is like, Sam, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, this is what it means to be one of our directional elders. If there's something about Sam that we don't know that would disqualify him from being an elder based on those passages, we would ask you to contact the church. Now, it can't be like... He honked at me in traffic and hurt my feelings. And it's, it's not that. It's like qualifications of an elder and overseer in the scripture. We've um, interviewed and tested. They've been here a long time in our church and faithful, and we're so grateful for them. But wanted to let you know that about Sam and Tammy. All right, let's extend our hands and receive God's blessing as we go. Father, I thank you for sending your son for us. And your sons and daughters now that have their hands extended to you, I pray this new week in their life that you would bless them. I pray you would give them wisdom. I pray that you would walk closely with them. I pray this new week that they would be reminded by you that their shame and sin is covered 
that they are forgiven and free. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.